Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As you almost certainly know, uh, if you're listening to this podcast or if you read Tech Dirt for any length of time, uh, free speech has been a really important and central topic on Tech Dirt going back really to the earliest days of its existence. Uh, while we're sort of officially a blog about technology and business and policy and, and law, uh, the rise of the internet as a tool to enable more speech has always been really kind of a key thing for me. And that actually goes back way beyond tech dirt in terms of how how important and how interested I am in issues related to free speech. Uh, when I was actually in high school, uh, some friends and I published and distributed an underground newspaper in our school, and and I was given the unenviable task of having to write up the back page article that went really deep on how uh, what we were doing was legal and that we couldn't be punished by the school for it. And so I remember having to go to the library because this was, you know, pre-internet days or pre-widespread internet days at least and researching all these different cases and things like Tinker versus Des Moines and, and whatnot and really becoming super, super interested in the concept of free speech and, and honestly the history of free speech. But but mainly my, my knowledge uh, of that was in the United States under the First Amendment. Uh, I've certainly paid attention to current fights regarding free speech around the globe, but certainly had a lot less of an understanding of the history of free speech itself outside of the U.S. So I was really, really interested to find out about a new book by Jacob Manchangama uh, entitled Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media, which dives deep, really deep into the global history of free speech. Uh, and I'm just going to say it up front that this is an absolutely fantastic book. It's just incredibly deeply researched, really, really well written, engaging, and I've learned so much from it that I just had no idea about before uh, regarding just all different elements of the free, of free speech throughout history around the globe. Uh, and assuming that we get this podcast out on time, uh, revealing that we record these a little bit earlier, uh, the book is coming out today, the day that the podcast comes out, uh, and it gets my highest recommendation. If you are looking for something to read and you are interested in free speech, I cannot recommend this book enough. Um, the book starts in ancient times exploring various movements and beliefs around free speech, and then moves forward chapter by chapter through time, century after century, you know, jumping around the globe, exploring how this society or that society explored concepts either directly about free speech or related to free speech. Uh, and, you know, in reading through the book, I have two big takeaways from the book, which we'll be discussing with the author in, in a moment. Uh, but I wanted to just throw the, the, the sort of two big takeaways that I had from the, from the book uh, out before we start. And the the first is that <laughs> the quickest summary of the book, and I've told this to a few people, is that this person or that person, uh, you know, advocated for or proclaimed some form of support for free speech. And then when they were in power, suddenly moved to suppress critical speech of themselves over and over again. <laughs> you see that through the book. 
And then the second big takeaway is that the debates over free speech, whether you go back decades, centuries, or even millennia, sound remarkably similar to the debates that we have about free speech today. So I am thrilled that we have uh, Jacob on the podcast today to talk about his amazing new book, Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. So Jacob, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Mike. It's a, it's a real uh, privilege and, and honor to be on your, your podcast. As you probably uh, noticed, I, I, I reference your work uh, uh, a few times, uh, even even yes. e- even in a in a in a chapter on on uh, on free speech in the ancient world in in, in Rome. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I was that was you know. <clears throat> I have to admit. So the funny thing was that when I when I first got the book, and it's a huge book. It's, it's, you know, it's weighty. <laughs> uh, and I flipped open, I just randomly, you know, I'm like flipping through the book and I flipped open uh, and I, t- towards the end, I, I saw you referenced, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I've, that I've written. And I th- just, I thought that was funny, you know, in a 500 page book, I just randomly opened to a page that had it. And then I started reading the whole book and we're, we're talking about, I, I forget where it is, it's either ancient Rome or ancient Greece. And you bring up the, the Streisand effect. Yeah. And I was like, I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a you know it's a, it's a it's a so it's Tacitus, this uh, ancient Roman historian who describes how the emperor Tiberius is is uh, is persecuting this historian who, who's who's written a, a book that uh, sort of uh, makes heroes out of uh, republican uh, Romans, and 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 the guy ends up starving himself to death, and and his book is supposed to be banned, and and Tacitus basically sort of says that uh, how foolish are, are those who think that they can sort of uh, consigned to the dustbin of history, uh, these works by punishing authors. Instead, their, you know, their ideas will will grow, and here we are, sort of uh, more than two thousand <laughs> years uh, later, talking about them. So I, I guess it's it's it's, it's he, yeah, <laughs> there was something to it, um, and so you know, I I will say you know, the, the book is it's you know, it's really, really deeply researched. I mean, one of the things that that impressed me about it, you know, beyond the fact that it's you know, it's this giant book i mean you have basically like there's a hundred page of pages of end notes um and so much of it is stuff that like i'm actually you know i only recently finished reading the full book but i want to go back and start going through some of the end notes myself just to, because there were so many things where i was like oh i, I would actually like to know more about that mm-hmm. or, or or more deeply explore this or that um but but i, I was also kind of curious just in in going through it and seeing how much research was done like h- how did you go about the process of of digging up all this information there's so much you know i mean there, there's a lot in there what what was the process of just researching the book yeah so basically uh, back in in 2017 um I probably launched launched in 2018 i launched a, a, a podcast uh, on the history of free speech called clear and present danger a history of free speech uh, that I concluded in 2020, I think. So it's like for 42 episodes. So a lot of the research was done there. Um, but but I've also, uh, but but still, you know, writing a book is a much more rigorous uh, process. And of course you find things, you know, when you have to produce a podcast episode and you have like uh, two weeks, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> there are certain details uh, that you don't get right. But I also have to say, I've, I've had a, a fantastic research assistant, um, Matthias Meyer, uh, who's a, who, you know, who graduated as a historian while, while working on the podcast and who worked for me for, for, for four years and sort of became a historian in, in his own right. Um, but I've, you know, I've, I've, I've had this interest in, in, in free speech. And, and, you know, prior to that, I wrote a history, uh, a book on the history of free speech, 
in Denmark, where I'm, where I'm born uh, and, and, and raised, uh, a thousand pages book with a with a co-author. Uh, so so I was sort of in in the mindset of of sort of going down the rabbit hole of of various uh, of of, of uh, various parts of the history of free speech. But of course, it is has been incredibly time consuming. You know, ask my wife and 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 kids, and <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure they've uh, always been been happy with the with with the workload involved in it. Um, uh, so 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 yeah so so a, a lot of research uh, definitely but i've also you know had a lot of uh, help from from my research assistant and also been able just to draw on the expertise of of so many people uh, who have sort of graciously agreed to comment you know historians and and, and others and 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 pointed me in, in in the direction of that you know i couldn't have done it without the many you know and you know I've been amazed about how many sort of really prominent historians that I've approached that, you know, just with no reputational or financial uh, benefit at all, just um, decided to dedicate hours of their time to to help me. So a complete nobody who just approached them out of the blue. And, and that has been extremely uh, helpful uh, uh, as well. Yeah, I can, I can imagine um, as you were as you were writing the book and as you were you know going through and doing all this research you know for the podcast or the book or or, or whatever um, was there anything that really surprised you was, was there any things that you know that came up that you were not expecting that that took you by surprise yeah I think there were uh, lots of things I think you mentioned some of them um, for instance like the degree to which we're just repeating sort of narratives and memes that uh, <laughs> that, that 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 were really uh, have been brought up again and again over the over the centuries is is like really striking at at times uh you know whether it's 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 disinformation or 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 whatever um i also think you know to me one of the key takeaways is the degree to which um, free speech and equality are mutually uh, reinforcing rather than sort of mutually exclusive or at least intention as as some people in democracies tend to argue these days. Uh, I, I think that's a really um, a red threat throughout the history of free speech that in many ways I would argue it's, it, it may be the the most powerful engine of human equality ever stumbled upon by by, by human beings and something that Every group um, that has ever been oppressed or sort of a vulnerable minority has be, relied on to further their stake um, as uh, equally respected citizens, um, and 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 also how you know censorship and repression has been the go-to tool of every uh, oppressive state, and and really that whatever kind of authoritarian state, whether it's a religious tyranny, whether it's a fascist, you know, the first freedom uh, that they will attack is free speech. You know, you saw that with in, in back in, in ancient Athens when the democracy was was twice overthrown. So it was it was basically free speech that was attacked uh, as, 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 uh, that became the first victim. And you see that also today, you know, what does China attack when they want to uh, limit the the liberty of, of Hong Kong well it's free speech um, and, right. and free speech rights so so that ancient playbook is is unfortunately very much at play and that also says something about the value of free speech which and that may be another takeaway I think we tend to take for granted in open liberal democracies you know fortunately 
you know, apart from your struggles in, in back in your school days, you know, you and I probably have not had to, uh, to fight for free speech the way that other right. generations uh, have had. And, you know, you and I, you know, you're, you're in California, I believe, uh, and I'm in, yep. in Denmark. So and we're having a, a discussion in real time and we may throughout our conversation, uh, come to criticize, uh, particular politicians and powerful business, uh, and so on. But, I don't know about you, but I don't think of it as I'm now I'm exercising this really important uh, freedom. I'm just thinking, you know, you were having a conversation uh, and, and I take right. that for granted. You know, it's uh, and, and millions of people are doing the same. But in reality, we are actually exercising free speech. If we went back a uh, hundred years ago, I think governments of the time would not have been very keen ab about the ability of, of, of citizens to be able to communicate as instantaneously as we are now. And in fact, in many ways, modern governments, even democ democratic ones, are not very happy uh, about the, the way that the internet uh, has facilitated uh, instant uh, communication, sort of circumventing traditional institutional gatekeepers. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I'm sort of, uh, you know, acutely aware of of how different, you know, for, for two main reasons, I think that, you know, the, the world is right now, um, or, you know, really over the last like 50 years or so between like, just sort of more and more, um, well, within within certain limits like legal recognition of of the importance of free speech you know certainly in the US context though that's that's under threat also um but then combined with the internet and those two things together uh, enabling so much more free speech you know i i always um i i laugh at you know in some of the debates that that we're having and, and there was just uh, recently I, i i had mentioned it in a in a blog post about something where um people are complaining that this is like the most uh you know like the worst time for free speech in history it's like no it's the, no. there's there's no way that it's not the opposite of that right there there's no way you can look at this and say that like you know within the say the last like three decades or whatever that this hasn't been the the most widespread supportive time for free speech there is backlash yeah and there are you know a pushback on these things but the idea that like you know Historically, most people, you know, one had no venue to speak, yeah. which is which is part of it. But then, second was like, you know, much more likely that if you were speaking out against those in power, you were going to get punished for it. I mean, yeah. and severely. Um, and I, and I, you know, I like to think about. I think you can take sort of a a long term and a short term view about the the status of, of free speech. And of course, you, you'd you'd have to generalize because, you know, it, it might look very different depending on which country you you, uh, you live in. But I think yes. you know, if if you take the long term view, there's no doubt that we live in a golden age of free speech. Well, you know, free speech has been. It, you know, it's an international human rights uh, norm. It's 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 protected right. in, in 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 constitutions and just uh, you know the practice of free speech. Even with all these laws that are being adopted and and so on, you know, speech is just ubiquitous. You know, uh, it's it's everywhere. Um, uh, so 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 most of us, uh, and especially in democracies, have ample opportunities <laughs> to to. Uh, It, yeah, to to share information, to obtain information, basically from all the compounded knowledge of, of humankind, if you, if you so wish. Um, but then, uh, uh, so so if you were like some of the trailblazers of free speech, and you were sort of 
could be awakened awoken from the dead and and transported it, if, you know forward into time you would say wow <laughs> you know i cannot believe you know in my wildest dreams this uh, I, I i couldn't have dared dream of of what um, free speech would look like today um but on the other hand i would say that uh, there are there are unfortunately signs that the golden age may be you know that we're living in a free speech recession um both in terms of uh, increasingly strict legal uh, limits uh, on on free speech, but also what I think is perhaps even more important, which is the culture of free speech. So basically, that for for any society for free speech to really thrive, you need to have a critical mass of people who uh, who accept uh, that uh, the idea of, of tolerance in in the sense that you know we can live right. together in peace despite our fundamental disagreements over religion and politics and, 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 and philosophy and, and, and so on. And I think uh, there, there are signs that the, those things are, are eroding in, in, in liberal democracies, although I don't see, you know, I don't see liberal democracies um, becoming uh, totalitarian or, or in, in the near future. But I think one of the disturbing things about, especially in Europe, European laws limiting uh, online speech is that they legitimize the restrictions of uh, authoritarian states. And, and we see that clearly. So my organization has, has produced a number of reports that sort of show how Turkey and Russia, Venezuela and these states will explicitly reference um, oh, yeah. laws from Germany and, 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 and the like. Uh, and and uh, so so in, in that sense, you know, democracies I think have a special duty to 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 not sort of forge the chains with which authoritarian states will will lock down their their societies and citizens. Yeah, I mean that's that's been a huge concern for mine. And like I, I I don't know if you've been following as closely, but the um, you know I know the book talks a lot about NetzDG in in Germany as as a law that is now sort of justifying all sorts of crackdowns. I mean, you know Russia based it's sort of it's had a few different internet laws to to crack down on free speech and sort of you know use the exact same language yeah. as as the German NetzDG law. Uh, and now like the, the the other one that I think is just incredible is there's a debate in the UK which I don't know if you followed about the the. It, it was originally called the online harms bill and it's now they changed it so it's the online safety bill um but the the mechanisms for uh i'll say diplomatically like encouraging websites to be more aggressive and pulling down speech um are almost identical to the mechanisms that the great firewall of china used when it sort of first set up it, it's the, the the great firewall has sort of evolved over over time and how how china handles internet censorship is a little bit different today but you know going back like 15 years you know they had this mechanism which was basically um we're not going to tell you exactly what's illegal but if you fall, if you make a mistake and let bad stuff through, you know, the government can fine you or, or yeah. you, know, uh, you know, create other penalties. And that's what the UK model is right now yeah. or the one that's been proposed. And I'm just like, this is incredible. Like the fact that we're modeling uh, a law about speech based on what China, which is, you know, obviously incredibly sensorial, like how, how, how could anyone in a, in a Western democracy think that this is the right approach to, to handling speech online? Um, and it's, it's massively concerning. And we just, you know, um, you know, on Tector, we just had a, a sort of 
celebration, I guess, of, of the 10 years since the, the, the pushback against um, SOPA, which was, you know, a copyright specific law. And, and I remember very clearly, you know, as that fight was going on, that there was, a, I forget where it was, but, uh, you know, the Chinese government, more or less mocking the U.S., the fight over SOPA, you know, had, had written an article in some publication that was basically like, See, you know, what you're looking to do in the U.S. with SOPA, which was about it would block sites if they were considered pirate sites. But, you know, with, with under a you know, questionable level of due process, you know, but China put out this article saying, you know, we're doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Like, yes, we're taking down sites, but we're taking down sites that are dangerous, just like you want to take down sites that you deem are dangerous. It's the exact same thing. So you're just justifying what we're doing. And like, that was the part that I was like, I can't believe, like, why are we giving this ammunition yeah, exactly. to, to the Chinese government? Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you want, so, you want to have pretty bright lines between, you know, the regulation yes. of, of speech in, in democracies and 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 in countries like China and and, and Russia, but you know, yeah, I, I, you know, I haven't I've looked at the online safety bill. It, it seems to me that the Commonwealth countries are really uh, pushing this this model and 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 sort of adopting you know models that are <laughs> perhaps even end up being worse than than the Net DG. Um, and certainly worse than the, than the DSA uh, that that uh, yeah. the European Union is, uh, which is sort of uh, you know borderline okay when you depend when you when you when you look at the the general speech uh, regulations of, of speech in in in, uh, in Europe. But even here in Denmark, you know, uh, our government put out a bill which says that um, that platforms have to set up a procedure. Where they, um, upon uh, receiving a complaint, they must be able to determine the validity of that claim within 24 hours and remove um, uh, that content. And it's not limited to, you know, it's not like NetsDG, which is limited to certain provisions in the criminal law. This is any, um, you know, content that violates any law. So that could potentially right. be sort of copyright or, you know, marketing. Uh, and, and, and you know, it's just, you know, how on earth is, uh, you know, any platform going to be able to process that claim within uh, 24 hours. And also, you know, the, the, the platforms can avoid uh, potential liability if they remove such content with reference to their own terms. So uh, that just gives them a huge incentive to just uh, right. to, to just draft incredibly broad uh, terms and and just uh, whenever in doubt just just remove stuff. Um, so so I think that's uh, that that's that's really uh, that's really concerning. Um, what what what's going on? And, and especially because to me. And I think this is also sort of a very frequent theme on, on TechDoid is that so many of the of the controversies and the sort of common knowledge around social media and the internet, you know, really often turns out to be a lot more complicated and nuanced, and sometimes it's just even myths. So, <laughs> so this idea that illegal content is flooding social media platforms. You know, right. th there's not a, a lot of, uh, of evidence for that. Of course, in absolute numbers, you're going to find a lot of stuff. But as a share, so we did, we did, just did a, a surveys um, with a, on a represent, representative sample uh, out of 63 million uh, Facebook comments. And, and, um, and then it turned out like we estimated that it was sort of zero point. 
six six percent or something like like that that were actually um, in, in violation of the Danish criminal code, and that's of course a completely different picture to what you see uh, being touted in uh, in uh, in the media and and among politicians. Um, so that is really driving it, and, and so in many ways, sort of the the moral panic about disinformation is sometimes driven by disinformation or at least misinformation. Oh yeah, I mean that that's the incredible thing to me is how much of the debate about about you know mis and disinformation is mis and disinformation itself, and and you know and and a lot of times you know there there are whether it's on purpose or not, and often I would say it's probably not on purpose, but but there are other sort of you know uh, motivations going on where it's just like for politicians, right. It's easy to grandstand on. It's always easy to grandstand on like this speech is dangerous or this speech is problematic. And, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, a a lot of the the media that is driving the sort of moral panic are really ones who are competitors to the internet in some ways or another. Right. I mean, they're sort of, you know, they're, they're fighting for advertising dollars and, you know, and again, like some of this is, you know, explicitly obvious and some of it is not. And, you know, I found it funny that, um, you know, again, since we were just talking about the, the fight over SOPA and, and copyright and stuff, uh, how many of the lobbyists who were involved in the fight over copyright issues a decade ago are suddenly reappearing and suddenly positioning themselves as experts on content moderation and speech. And I was like, that's you know and and like pushing for like more and more regulations to 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 hinder the the internet's you know internet company's ability to host speech and i was just like you know that feels a little sketchy that that, you know for for 15 20 years you were you were you know uh you know working for hollywood trying to pass these laws to, to and then suddenly you're like an expert in content moderation i don't think so um and so there's like these other forces that are that are there as well you know i'm not saying that like that's all of it but but there is a piece of that that i think is is noteworthy as well sure and and it's what what is interesting is that you know when when newspapers started appearing they were often described in the very same manner by those in authorities as 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 social media is is being described now as these sort of vehicles for 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 um, lies and uh, and and harmful uh, content that would sort of undermine uh, all authority in, in society and that would just lead to chaos and and you know and basically it, what what I sort of see as as a as a as a pattern throughout the history of free speech is sort of uh, two competing conceptions of free speech so one is an egalitarian conception of free speech with 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 roots in in um, the athenian democracy and the other is a more elitist um conception of free speech with its roots in in uh, in the roman republic and and i think those two concepts have have really uh, been fighting it out uh, every time there's been sort of a technological development or every time uh, there've been sort of political development sort of where you expand the public sphere to uh, to new uh, groups that are, are typically sort of the less educated, uh, the less well-to-do, and then the institutional gatekeepers who see themselves as all that's standing between uh, <laughs> between order and chaos, uh, fear what will happen if the sort of unwashed mob is given is given uh, <laughs> unmediated access to to think for themselves or, or, or not 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 having their information filtered, um, and and you see that you know incredibly explicit you know and and you know we were just talking about the the 
it, it, the, the the British or English uh, online uh, safety bill. Mm -hmm. And in, in a certain way, it doesn't really surprise me that much that that would be the approach because I think Britain has always had this really um, <laughs> fight between between order and liberty. And whenever these two concepts have been seen to uh, to to clash, they've sort of tended to err on the side of of order. Uh, and yeah. so you see that, for instance, in in the prosecution of Tom Paine, for instance, uh, who was yeah. who was prosecuted in, in 1792 for for sedition, and you know the attorney general flatly states that you know he's 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 arousing the the lower classes and and that's dangerous you see it with a with a guy called richard carline in in the early 19th century who who's selling you know tom Paine and Diaz books to the lower classes and and there you know the the the, the attorney general says in 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 court that you know you know it's not religion per se that needs protecting it's the it's the lower classes who, uh, who unlike the rich and the, the powerful you know don't have the means to to really uh, uh, think for themselves and therefore right. you know they need christianity to to shield them uh, for um, and 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 sort of to accept their lot in life and 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 you know of course it's not a you know exactly the same uh, today uh, but but i think a lot of the the dynamics uh, are still in play yeah. uh, that that we see oh yeah i mean it, it it there's there's an echo there to to the debates today and it's sort of the same thing where it's like you know social media oh no the riffraff can speak yeah. and and they're so easily manipulated that you know that's the danger right and there's this this underlying elitism there with this idea that like you know that that it's you know all the 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 riffraff, the dumb people who, you know, they can't have free speech. Look what they're doing with it. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, it shows up again and again in the book. And, and you know, I mean, that gets back to this thing, you know, you know, one of the, the other sort of takeaways that I had from the book, and, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, you know, with a lot of these debates, we keep seeing the same thing, like people, and, and this is seen in your book, but also in reality today, where you have all these people who, who say like, you know, you know, I, I, I'm a, a free speech supporter. I, I fight for free speech. And then like the first chance that they have, they're just like, but not that speech, you know, like yeah. that, that speech is, is problematic. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it made me sort of realize and sort of conceptualize a little bit more the idea that like free speech is a lot more complicated, I think, than, than people think of it. So, you know, a lot of people say they're for free speech, and it sounds like a very straightforward idea, but they haven't necessarily taken in, you know, there's a lot that is included when you, you know, if you're really going to support free speech and you really need to understand what it is that, that you're supporting. And I think a lot of people who who claim that they're for, for free speech don't really think it through. Um, and then that shows up in, in the, the, the thing that I said at the beginning where you have all these people who say like, yes, free speech is the most important thing. And then the second they're like, you know, they see speech they don't like, they're like, except that kind of speech. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, we see that all the time today. And I just wonder if that is something inherent to the, to the concept of free speech that we're always going to see that because, you know, the people, you know, most people, when they conceptualize this idea of free speech, they don't think through really what that means. Or, or is there something else? No, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I think. I think. In in, in many ways, uh, free speech is an incredibly difficult concept for human beings. Uh, so it's it, you know, maybe maybe intolerance is more hardwired into us 
than 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 tolerance. But you're exactly right with that. <laughs> I, I in the book I call it Milton's curse because yes. John Milton, the 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 English poet who wrote in 1644 um which is sort of a defense of press freedom and and uh, and and a criticism of the license licensing law, uh, pre-publication censorship law uh, reintroduced in in England. Uh, and and it's you know written in beautiful language. It has a lot of potent uh, things that you could quote again and again. But if you read it closely, <laughs> uh, John Milton is not f- for free speech for for Catholics or atheists or all kinds of other people, and he's perfectly fine with books being burned uh, that 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 he doesn't like. So he has a very narrow conception. Uh, a free speech, and the tragedy is that he actually ends up being a censor himself before right. before he dies, uh, and also sort of uh, defending a, a, a very restrictive blasphemy law and, and hardcore persecution of Catholics. But but that is something that we that we see um, again and again. I think I think are in many ways sort of human beings are more uh, guided by our sort of. Uh, visceral emotions than than sort of our reason and so mm-hmm. we are experts at sort of letting our biases come up with these explanations that are that 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 where we can convince ourselves that we're not actually undermining free speech when we're making this particular exception because that specific threat uh, is uh, you know so acute that it goes within the the general exceptions to free speech uh, right. when in fact you know you look at it when you zoom out and you you're no longer sort of being captive to your emotions uh, it becomes quite clear that in fact you're 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 not very different from from uh, from 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 all the others who want to limit free speech on on the issues that they care about i i, I you know i see it a little bit today in the us where uh, sort of on the on the you know it's it's difficult you know with the first with the legal protection of, of free speech under the first amendment is is so strong that typically uh, not a lot of laws on on political speech uh, tend to be uh, controversial but but sort of at at the cultural level where uh, so-called cancel culture for instance where, where you'll you'll have some people on the left saying oh that's not it doesn't even exist you know even when you can so, sort of show ex- um, numerous existence uh, examples of you know professors being disciplined or even fired for the pedagogical use of the slurs, where everyone was, of course, that's a, a, a restrictions of free of free speech. If it's in a private university, it might not be a First Amendment issue, but it certainly undermines the culture mm-hmm. of free speech. Then at the same time, you can have conservatives who will say, who will you know talk endlessly about cancel culture and and you know how the left is is reintroducing orthodoxy and they'll be perfectly fine with laws um, that sort of, uh, I I think we're seeing almost a tsunami of laws now in higher education, not even just limited to K-12, but but even sort of colleges and, and so on, trying to limit, you know, critical race theory or the 1619 project and so and and you know trying to argue with a straight face that this has nothing to do with with uh, with with limited right. free speech which of course is blatant the an attempt to 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 basically ensure another form of of orthodoxy but it's very rare that you have people 
who who will problematic will see well it's problematic when both sides do it you know we have right, we have right. to stand against you know, both the attempts from the left and the right and when we're not doing that we're actually legitimizing uh, um, the the, uh, the 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 various attempts to limit free speech from either side and also incentivizing it because I think one of the tragedies of of um, uh, of, of, of sort of uh, tolerance be, or the culture of free speech being undermined is that if you don't have basic faith that you know the institutions or the government uh, that you live under will respect uh, free speech uh, when they're in power of, of their opponents, you'll be incentivized to say you know those that I agree with with when they're in power they should definitely limit free speech because otherwise the evil ones will come in and, and right. so it's sort of an act of self-defense. Uh, to to sort of preemptively uh, use censorship to fight censorship, um, and and that's that. Of course, there are you know um, good good um, you know I've I've, I've been a um, a fellow of of Fire Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, yep. who have also supported the, the the book, and I think they do a really good job at at at, at defending free speech from from all sides. Um, yeah. But but um, but but unfortunately, there's so much sort of uh, polarization and, and tribalism driving uh, um, uh, th- this uh, erosion of the the culture of free speech, which I think is is dangerous. Because you know, you you look at the First Amendment and you say, yeah, the the legal protection has probably never been been stronger. But then you know, go back a hundred years, and the Supreme Court would have no problem sending someone to jail for ten or or twenty years. You know, upholding that if they peacefully. Uh, opposed American involvement in World War One or advocated socialist policies, and and you know the right. the, the First Amendment, the wording has not changed, uh, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, but so it's so it's the underlying assumptions, uh, and and you know so if the the culture of free speech sort of erodes, then you know who knows what the First Amendment uh, doctrine will look like in ten or twenty or thirty years. Yeah, well, I I did you know the the I actually wanted to talk a little bit about you know that part of the book you talk a little bit about that and I this was the one part of the book that I was like I'm not sure you know that that you know made me wonder a little bit about some stuff because the term cancel culture to me I, I find really problematic mm-hmm. um, like I understand what it's discussing but I kind of feel like in a lot of cases people are. Um, and I'm not saying you do this, but I'm I'm sort of explaining my concern with the the term cancel culture, which you do talk about in the book, sure. is that it is often used itself as a way of suppressing speech, right? So um, a lot of people have sort of used the the phrase cancel culture to describe what to me is also free speech, which is that is criticism. Yeah, uh, you know, someone says something ridiculous, and people you know, speak out and, and, uh, and complain about it. And then people start saying, well, that's cancel culture. You can't do that. Um, and so I'll, that's not to say that, that some people haven't been punished unfairly or that some people might be intimidated to say certain things. I think there are examples of that that might be worth exploring. But the term cancel culture to me has been extended to such a, a broad degree that it itself actually you know, is being used to suppress speech, in my opinion. Yeah, because well, it's saying well, like, it, "Oh, you can't criticize these people." Yeah, no, because- I, and, and, and that you know, I, I try, and uh, maybe I didn't do a good enough job, but I, but I, 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 I think I, I write quite explicitly that you know, the fact that you're being criticized, even harshly, uh, yeah. um, on, on social media, or that you don't 
um, that 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 people um, uh, um, you know if a, if a if a person walks out while you're giving a, a lecture, uh, that's their right to do so, and of course you don't have a right to have a, a piece published in the New York Times. And, right. uh, so so of course the the uh, the the term cancel culture. If sort of if if it undergoes scope creep, if you like, it can can sort of be be, be weaponized uh, to so that it, it it's no longer um, focuses on the real issues of, uh, of of speech restrictions. But but what I'm talking about is you know the example. So I I don't remember the exact uh, number, but I think Fire showed that uh, between say 2015 and 2021 there were like 500. Um, teachers and professors who suffered some kind of, of of consequence for speech, and that to me is a real example. Uh, you know, that's not that that's not criticism, and there's also a huge difference between someone saying, "I really hate the ideas uh, that you are," uh, I, "I hate your ideas," and 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 even sort of uh, having others. Uh, mobilizing others to criticize that—that's perfectly right. within within free speech. And then responding to ideas that you don't like with putting pressure on administrators or or uh, to fire. But I mean, that's not advancing an argument. Right. That that's trying but, but, that's, but, that's but, trying to shut down uh, speech. Right, but but that's where it actually you know again like I, I see a lot of nuance in this where where I I, I see your side your argument there. And there's a part of me that agrees with it, but there's also a part of me that that is thinking that's like, you know, if the argument, you know, th- then there is, you know, you can still have consequences just to, to 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 your speech, and if you know the speech, uh, you know, somebody is saying stuff or or teaching stuff that is, you know, is directly false, and people say that's false, that shouldn't be taught because it's it's false, then you have a, a debate and. And a an institution, an organization, could say this is not what we should be teaching, because it's it's incorrect. So you know there is this element of you know if enough people speak out, like I I cannot I, I I'm sort of tap dancing around this because it's a, this is part of the trickiness of free speech, right? Because some of the argument could be that you know. This is a marketplace of ideas kind of concept where if enough people are saying like this is this is false information that you know teaching it is is incorrect and if people look at that and say oh yeah this is incorrect and this is something that we shouldn't be be teaching then that's a consequence of free speech as well but you could also see how that could go wrong right so that's that's where like this is part of the 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 complexity of free speech that that comes into it that I'm sort of like wrestling with in my head as well mm. because you could you could easily see where that goes wrong where you know someone could say that like teaching you know uh, uh you know teaching respect for religions is is wrong or whatever and and th- that should be silenced too so you can see where and historically that kind of argument probably has gone mm. wrong much more than it has gone right yeah but, but you know I, I think when it comes to sort of university for for instance i th- i really think that um you know of course you want to you you, you want you want your professors uh, uh, and and uh, and teachers to have uh, a a high level of competency sure. within whatever field they're they're teaching um 
but you, you certainly also want them uh, to be able to to uh, raise issues that might be uh, thought of as provocative and and that goes right. ag uh, against the grain. And you know, if you go back, uh, you know, uh, if you go back uh, again, World War One is is quite instructive. So you had at, at Columbia University, you had a, a number of teachers who were anti anti war. And what happened? They were fired by by university, right. and and there was so there was this up uh, uh, there was this editorial in the New York Times which praised, uh, <laughs> which which praised uh, <laughs> Columbia for sort of getting rid of this because this had nothing to do with with academic uh, freedom, and and I think it, yes. it, it totally had something to do with academic freedom. Uh, um, so 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 uh, and and you know if you again if if you know if it's about truth you know. Then you know, do conservatives then get to say that uh, the sixteen nineteen project should not be taught in in any schools if they can find uh, parts of it that uh, historians uh, say are are misleading? You know, wh where do you uh, do you? Yeah, no, I I, I I I I I totally get that, and that's why like this is this is why this is such a complicated thing. I think my my I I would agree with the idea that. If you were to say like this cannot be taught anywhere, this should not be taught at all anywhere. But but I, I have a little bit harder of a time coming around to the idea that because of that, like no one should ever get fired because of of their speech, right? So if and like again, this is this is all, you know, it, it gets tricky and nuanced because you know, like I think if no one anywhere were allowed to to criticize a war or something like that would obviously be problematic. But, you know, if an institution decides that it wants to be, I think it should be criticized for that decision and that fact. And it shouldn't be, you know, say like this is this is fine. But I also recognize like, you know, you, there should be some element of their freedom as well to to make those decisions, right? Sure, and 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 you know, um, but I I think there's certain institutions, like especially universities and and, sure. you know, and, sure. and, and uh, newspapers and cultural institutions, who you know really cannot function properly without free speech, and who you know, um, you know, it it wouldn't make. It wouldn't make sense to have a university without academic freedom. It wouldn't make sense to have sure. a newspaper without without press freedom, uh, and so I think they have a, uh, a a a duty if this culture of free speech is to uh, is to persist to be uh, to to be open minded and not succumb to sort of uh, to 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 their own forms of, of moral panic if peop if people yeah. say uh, oh we uh, we di we didn't like uh, what this or, or, or that person says again you know does that mean you know if a if a if a journalist is being caught plagiarizing should he be fired absolutely uh, and that that I would not see that as a as a as a as a uh, right. as, as undermining uh, as undermining free speech yeah, I know, but I, 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 this is part of why I, I like I love thinking through this stuff, and I love discussing it because, like, and and why the, I think the book is so interesting is that th these are really uh, this is what we were talking about before. Like the complexity, there is complexity here, and there are arguments that sometimes feel like they're in conflict with each other, and even like you see this in, in some cases, and this shows up in the book a little bit, is like you know. Uh, you know, freedom of religion and freedom of speech are are very much connected, obviously. Um, but sometimes they actually can come into slight conflict, right? And so there are exam, and you have examples in the book, and I and I've seen them outside of the book as well, where it's like people talk about like 
criticizing religion is not considered free speech by some people because it's considered an attack on the religion. So it's like, you know, th there there are things where it, like it depends on on different different types of rights and whose rights you're protecting that make it much more complex than I think the sort of broad like well, it's easy to support free speech. I think it's it's often a, a lot more tricky when you get down to the to the the specifics. Yeah, no, and and, and of course, especially when you're talking about you know private institutions uh, that, yeah. that are not bound by First Amendment or human rights standards or or, or the like, and and who have a right to, to make sort of it's editorial or decisions and so on. Um, there, of course, it's not every consequence for speech that that, right. that would undermine it. But but I, I certainly think that we unfortunately see a, a number of decisions that are motivated by the, yeah. the, the desire to suppress certain uh, ideas and, and that run counter to, you know, academic freedom or, you know, how um, how you would like um, news organizations, for instance, to to be open to uh, to 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 different ideas. Yeah. And, and I think I think that's that's true. My, my you know, my my complaint or whatever, my issue is very much at the margins of like how, how that concept is now being abused by, by other folks to sort of, you know, tr try to insulate themselves from criticism. Sure. Um, sure. You know, and, the, and yeah, so, you know, yeah. if you are, if you're someone who, you know, <laughs> writes something stupid on Twitter uh, <laughs> right. and you get ratioed, that's not a violation of your free speech. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think I think that I, I, I'm, I'm really glad that we had this discussion and sort of like this this back and forth, because I think it, it sort of helps to illustrate some of the, the, the real complexities that I think a lot of people don't really think through when they're, you know, when they're they're talking about free speech. Um, and so, you know, um, I, I, just to wrap up, I mean, the, you know, I again, like the, the book is fantastic. And, and I was, you know, throughout the whole book, as I was reading it, I just kept saying like, you know, every time you introduce someone who has like a principled stand on free speech, you know, I've realized like within a page or two, I'm going to find <laughs> out that they did something terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that is pretty consistently true with one exception, I think, which was Eleanor Roosevelt comes out of the book really, really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. Um, and, you know, I haven't done enough research on Eleanor Roosevelt to, to see if she was con as consistent at home as she was, you know, so she was, she, she was, she was the first chairperson of the Commission of Human Rights in, at the United Nations, where she really fought doggedly against um, Soviet bloc's attempt to introduce uh, not uh, an, an obligation to prohibit hate speech under international law. So at first she succeeded when it was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, but then the Soviet bloc managed to win the day in with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is a legally binding convention uh, that was adopted in 1966, uh, and and Article 19 of the of the uh, of the ICCPR uh, is protects free speech. But then you have Article 20, Paragraph 2, which includes an obligation to prohibit certain forms of incitement uh, to to hatred, and that was something she fought against uh, very eloquently. Uh, and and I think she was prophetic in many ways. So she would argue that these provisions would 
legitimize totalitarian states crackdown um, on 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 speech and and sort of allow them give give them a, a veneer of legitimacy and sort of calling right. calling dissent a hate speech and and we saw that happen uh, so for instance in, in in some of the Soviet bloc countries where dissidents were were prosecuted and, and imprisoned on on charges yeah. of of incitement we still see it today unfortunately uh, so she came she yeah. came she came, and I think Someone like George Orwell may also be um, someone who, That's true. who, 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 yeah. who, you know. And again, I, I may not have re- have 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 read all that Orwell ha- has written, but but he tends, uh, as 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 far as I can tell, also to be really principled and also, of course, you know, he's a man of the left, but he's very very has a very very keen eye on the intolerance of the of the sort of non democratic left. Uh, which I think, uh, and I really like those persons who, who, um, who, who, who criticize their own, if you like, uh, um, right. and and sort of stands up and say, you know, we have to, we we have to criticize our, our own. So even though he's a, he's a socialist, he's very clear that he's a democratic socialist and that he, and that he is in favor of of, uh, of of free speech. I think he has a really good example also because. Even though he's really, really principled, and he he basically says that even totalitarian ideas should be should be allowed, he also he also sort of says you know tries to be practical about the limits. So so there's this uh, this fascist leader uh, in uh, um, Mosley, I think his name is, um, uh, and he says Orwell says something like you know during the Battle of Britain it was fine. To to basically intern him because you know he was you know we were at war and, and you know we we could have been you know our, our country was on the brink when 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 Hitler was sort of bombing uh, Britain and, and and Britain was fighting for its survival you couldn't have mostly running around uh, as as a, a fascist uh, Nazi sympathizer but then when in 1943 uh, when it was clear that that uh, the Nazis were no longer the same degree of threat he he thought it was an outrage that he was being kept uh, in in uh, behind bars um, without a trial or, or or anything and and I, I I thought that was a really eloquent way of of of, uh, um, of sort of demonstrating um, free speech and its limits. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Um, anyways, you know, as I said, it's, it's a really fantastic book. I, I really like, you know, as soon as, uh, as soon as I, I heard about its existence, I, I was excited. Then when I got it in my hands, uh, and, and, uh, was able to read through it, it's, you know, from, from, from the start to the end, it's really, you know, just page after page, really, really interesting. Um, super well-written. As I said, I want to, I'm, I'm, dying to dig into a whole bunch of the end notes as well, just because I want to explore some of the things, um, you know, everything is very clearly, you know, deeply researched and, um, there, there's lots to think about in there and just, you know, the, the, the echoes of today are, are really, really quite incredible. Um, and, um, in some ways frustrating, in some ways frustrating, <laughs> you know, I, I, and that, that's probably another thing is that, you know, we're probably never going to find a, a sort of a perfect equilibrium between between sure. authority and, and 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 free speech will always sort of be be struggling uh, with how to reconcile uh, these uh, these two two concepts and we've made a, a hell of a lot of progress compared to earlier times so yeah. it would be a shame to throw it away 
Yeah, no, no, I agree. Uh, so again, the book is called Free Speech, uh, A History from Socrates to Social Media. Um, and uh, it, it very much delivers on, on that title. Uh, and uh, Jacob, thanks so much for taking the time to, to come on the podcast and talk about it. Thanks so much, Mike. It was a real pleasure. And thanks for the, all the work you do. Cool. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap. To grab a shovel and dig up the tap.